Join me in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, as we start a new series this morning, the book of Judges, got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges, the sixth, seventh book in the, new, in the Old Testament. If you join me there, let me just jump right in right away. As you, if you need notes, raise your hand, they'll hand them to you. As we jump in so you can follow along, let me just delve right into this study for sake of time this morning. The book of Judges, a little bit of background. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it covers a period of time about 350 years from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 21. In that period of time that is talking about, we have already in their history, we've already had Moses lead the people of Israel out of what you all know as that story of the Exodus, coming out of Egypt with the plagues and all those things, crossing through the Red Sea, victory over Pharaoh's army, going into the wilderness, and eventually they ended up walking through the wilderness for 40 years, and that at the end of the 40 years, they come to the river Jordan. God does another miracle of opening the river. They cross through the entire nation. They march into the land and they start a warfare to take over what's called the promised land. Joshua is the leader during that time period. Joshua is not assigned to beat every single one in that of, of the peoples, the Canaanites in that, uh, in that campaign. Actually, if you go through the book of Joshua and understand what he's been told to do, Joshua's told to go in and break, break the alliance, the backbone of the major resistance. And he's told as he leads the army to keep the army always together, which he does during that 40 years of this camp, uh, of uh, that less than 40 years of his campaign. But during that period of time that he is doing that, what they are doing is they're staying together. They take cities, but they never occupy the cities they, as a whole. They have territory where they, where they are going from spot to spot, but the army always stays together until the end of Joshua. In the end, very end of the book, what is done is the people are there. There's tribal resistance. There's little spots of Canaanites, but the bigger opposition is done. And the people are told in the end of Joshua, chapter 24, now you go to your individual regions, Judah to your territory, Benjamin to your territory, Manasseh to your territory, and you wipe out all the remaining resistance. But we've got it prepared for you. There's no major alliances anymore. You can go in and take care of it tribe by tribe, mop up your territory, take over your territory. And so the people go in and they start doing that. That's where we come come to the book of Judges. That at the book of Judges, they've had victories. They've had a lot, of, a lot of success in the campaign through Joshua's time. In fact, when they start reading Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 1, it sounds like they're having initial victories as well. But then as time goes by, all of a sudden you get through the book of Judges and it's failure. Failure, 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 failure. And the whole climate, the whole attitude, the whole thought process seems to change drastically amongst the Jews, the God's people, and Judges becomes a really sad story, becomes a real negative story. It becomes one of a lot of disappointment. In fact, if you were going to compare the book of Joshua and all of its victories with the book of Judges, you'd have all these kinds of thoughts. You'd have victories in Joshua, a lot of defeat in Judges. You'd have the idea of conquest and taking over. You'd have oppression and being beaten in the book of Judges. Freedom, they're moving, they're God's people, and all of a sudden they're in bondage. Time and time again they end up enslaved by other people. You have a unity of the tribes, now you have a disunity amongst the people. You have songs of joy and victory and boy everything is great. All of a sudden sobs of sorrow through the book of Judges. A lot of different negative, negative ideas, you got a lot of progress, decline. You have obedience in Joshua, you have disobedience in the book of Judges. You have enthusiasm and excitement in the book of Joshua, you have discouragement. You have a lot of faith being portrayed in Joshua. And then you have, have a lot of unbelief in the book of Judges. 
And the book of Judges comes from that, that idea that here they are, they're, they're supposed to be God's people, and they were told by Moses, have faith, have faith, you'll have victory. And he encouraged them. He gathered them together and went through and rehearsed the entire book of Deuteronomy from beginning to the end and saying, stay focused, keep your eyes on the Lord, and when you go in, you're going to have victory after victory, and it'll, the land will be yours. They were told that. But you get to the book of Judges, and it doesn't happen. And it's not God's fault. In fact, you get to Joshua at the end. Chapter 24 is rallying. Joshua is ready to leave the scene. And he's got the people together and says, we've had victories. We've broken the back of the, of the major opponents. And you guys can now go into your territory. You, know, you can take, take and Naphtali, you can get your tribe. Asher, you can get your territory. And he's telling you one by one, you can go in, you can conquer. And he's encouraging him. And he says, and as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You do the same thing, you'll have victory. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. As you go through the book of Judges, what you find is the nation deteriorates. All of a sudden you have this issue that raises questions for us. Why is it so many second generations? Even of preachers who are of fame and renown, how is it that their children, grandchildren didn't follow the Lord? That's what happens in Judges. All of a sudden you see the next generation, the next generation. You know, some of you have seen that when churches you've gone to. You see somebody gets saved and they're excited and they're living for the Lord. And all of a sudden their children or their grandchildren, the next generation, doesn't have that same enthusiasm. That's the book of Judges. Why does that happen? Why is it that many ministries, even in America... They, all of a sudden, we have that years go by, they start off really well and they're strong and all of a sudden as time goes by, they just kind of peter out. Why is it that schools like Yale and Harvard that were started to be Bible colleges, in fact, when they were started, everyone who was a student in them had to be able to be so proficient in Greek that they could read it and preach from it without any notes. Every student in Yale and Harvard, when they started these schools, they were required to have what we would call a Bible major. Every student was required to report and record one hour a day in Bible reading and prayer. I don't think that would happen in Yale and Harvard anymore. What changed? Why is it that in America, right now, the average church reaches its peak at 12 years and then it starts to decline? Why does that happen? Is God only able to help the first generation? Does something happen to God that he gives a big oomph and then he's tired out like some of us? The questions abound, and I think the book is good for us to stop and ask, why is it that, these, that there isn't generation after generation perpetuity of, of really serving the Lord? These things are written for our admonition. They're written for our example. They're written for us to have warnings. They're written for us to have instruction to how to keep things going from generation to generation. And so we ask the good questions. We have to, as we go through the book of Judges, why do people drift as time goes by? What about our kids? What about our grandkids? Where are they going to be in 25 years? What can we do now to help them? Well, whose responsibility is it? What do we avoid? What do we put into our lives to make sure that not just we're saved, but those who come after us are saved and love the Lord? So the book to me is really a challenge and a real profound illustration of some biblical truths of what we need to do. And I'll give you the reasons why the Jews got away from the Lord. Go to Judges 21. Go to Judges 21. The first reason, 
And the warning to us is very simple. They forsook the authority of God. We're going to come back to the first chapter, but start with me at the very end of the book. God gives the conclusion at the end of the book of what the main problem was. And it's a verse that many of you know. It says in Judges 21, the very last chapter, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did... Do you remember this one? That which was right in his own eyes. What we have is this. They became very permissive. Take that phrase and just dissect it for a moment. It means that they became permissive. Whatever you want, whatever I want, anything goes. Basic idea. That we will tolerate anything and everything. If you think it's right, then it must be right. Every man's doing that which is right. Nobody's stopping one another. Why? We forsook the authority of the word of God. There are no absolutes to the Jewish people at this time. And in that point of history, there were no thus saith the Lord. And that's just 80 years or so after the commandments were given. And all of a sudden, here they are saying, you know, we can do whatever we want to do. Now, that may, we, we may cast stones at the Jews, at the Hebrews in that period. But let's pause for a second. Are we drifting as a nation? If our forefathers could see what's going on today, if they could see what's going on politically, would they be a little bit anxious? Let me rephrase this. Let me give you a polling that's from just this past year. And the questions are asked about certain things. Certain things about liberty of speech. This ought to scare the daylights out of every one of us. 40% of those under 30 think the federal government should censure speech that anyone finds offensive. Well, bottom line is, somebody's going to find everything offensive. 40% of the next generation thinks there should be laws restricting freedom of speech. We, we talk about this. 70% under 30 would be comfortable voting for a socialist. That is so contrary to the political defining of America. It's just amazing. Now, those are political statements that ought to scare us. But let's take a Barna poll that deals with the spiritual, moral compass of America. This is their 2015-2016 report, their most recent survey that they did. This group specializes in dealing with moral issues, church issues, things like that. And they started asking questions. The questions came up and the answers were this, that of those that they polled, 80% of America's, Americans are concerned about the moral decline in America. That's good. That's good, okay. So people are recognizing there's a moral decline, moral problems in America. But of those, of, of the 100%, 59 said that they believe the Bible contains some absolutes. Thus, you shall, you shall not. Okay, that doesn't mean they, they follow them, but 59% said, well, if, there are any, if there's a book that has some absolutes, it's probably the Bible. But of those that were surveyed, 57 also said that they believe right and wrong is a personal choice. Over half of America is saying it's up to the individual. Doesn't that remind you of a text of Scripture? And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is the first time that this question is hitting over the majority of Americans in the last 25 years. In that same polling, they asked that same question, 74% of those under 30 thinks right and wrong is a personal choice. Of those who were claiming to be born-again evangelicals, those who say it's a personal choice, 44%. That say it's 40%. You know, of the evangelical community, it should be 100% to say God's moral absolutes. Okay? Doesn't this show you there's a decline? 
There's a decline in America that scares me. Now, 20 years ago, the same group did a survey and they asked, what, do you, what are your most important values to live by? Living by faith was always the highest of the value in the, in the 20 years and before. Now, this year is the first time living by, by your faith is not even mentioned in the response in the top few responses. However, the top six responses that got the, the, the vast majority said this is the value system we should be living by. Here we go. Those values, top six values for Americans. Number one was this. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Not look to God, but you look within yourself. It goes on. To be fulfilled, you need to pursue the things you desire the most to be fulfilled. Top value. Life's highest goal is to enjoy it as much as possible. The Word of God says the highest good and goal of man is to bring glory to God, to give Him the glory. This, this scares me as we keep on going. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. That's one of the top six values for Americans. This one. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Last one. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. These are the most important six values, according to this survey, in American culture right now. That should, that, this is exactly what we read in Judges 21. Every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. Not accountable to God, not accountable to his word, his, his thus saith the Lord is no longer being observed. It's being put off by culture. You know, there was a missionary that our pastor was telling me about, a missionary who was in his church recently, and the missionary is working in tribal areas in Central Africa, and as he's doing that work, he was sharing with the church about all the superstitions and all the different struggles and all the different things. And somebody, the pastor overheard somebody come up to him afterwards and talking with him and saying to him, he says, hey, listen, when you get really discouraged from all the pressure of the superstition, the paganism, the ritualism, you know, the immorality, what do you do? What do you do? That must really wear you down. He says, well, I'll tell you the truth. When I get to that point, I get on a plane and I leave America and go back to the mission field. <laughs> and some of our missionaries would say amen to that. They see a decline happening in our country. You and I, as individuals who claim to be born again, should be concerned. You and I who are parents should be definitely concerned. You and I who are grandparents should be very concerned that we pass on the Word of God to the next generation. And with passing on that Word of God that we emphasize to them there is a God. This God we are answerable to. This God has certain standards and moral absolutes, and we obey what he says or there's consequences. This God needs to be worshipped. He needs to be obeyed. He needs to be heard. And most important, we should be passing on to our children in the next generation, you must be born again. Going to church is not enough. Learning scripture is not enough. Being able to, to say the books in, of the Bible in order is not enough. You need to be born again and learn that your life's goal is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To do whatsoever you do to the glory of God. That we are created for his glory, his pleasure, not our own. We need to pass that on. We need to be reminding the next generation that God is an authority that ought to be obeyed and ought to be followed. But for the Jews back in that, section, that time, they didn't do that. 
They didn't connect with this idea that God is the authority. They started doing what is right in their own eyes. Now they also had problems for another reason. The second reason is they forfeited everything that they could have gotten easily from God. Go back to chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2, and these, we're just getting the whole book just opening up. We're going to start talking beginning this evening with one of those judges, but just laying the foundation. Let's set the scene for what's happening. We go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is, one is giving you a little bit of some of the military uh, happenings as you read through chapter 1. When the Jews started going in, Joshua said, okay, each one of you go to your territory. And chapter 1 gives a story, a few stories of some of the tribes and where, what happened to them when they went to their territories and how they had a little bit of victory, but they had a lot of defeat. Chapter 2 explains that God meets with them. And God warns them. He comes, it talks about the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, meets with them by Bokim, or in other words, the weeping tree. And it says, the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league or treaties with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. And God very clearly says, I I promised you this. I promised you I would give you this land. It was yours for the taking. I'd said this back with Moses. I repeated it with Joshua. But you haven't done it. You were given the land. It was theirs. Now you had to do a little bit of work. You had to do some of the battling. But you didn't succeed. You forfeited my blessings of victory. Why? Why? Well, you go through the rest of the chapter and get an idea. The reason that they forfeited all that God had planned for them is one, they discarded walking by faith. They stopped walking by faith. Instead, they walked by sight. Go to chapter 1 and watch how it unfolds. And I want you to remind yourself, as you start reading with me in a moment, of what the setting was. Here, go back. What made the walls of Jericho foul down? You remember the story that they march around it for several days. They blow their trumpets, and they're marching around. And then they go back to camp, and then they come the next day and march around. Then on the last day, they come and they march around it several times, and they blow their trumpets. The reason that the walls fell, as some scholars say, is that as they were marching and trampling, they shook the foundation so much from their walking that all of a sudden by the seventh day, the walls were shaking and they just fell down. Do you believe that? Okay. What caused the walls to fall down? Oh, they blew the trumpets. This is the first time that the acoustical music was so loud that it reverberated and the walls crushed because of the trumpet blowing. I don't think so. Okay, Because the, 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 if that was so bad, the Jews would have fallen down too. Okay, They didn't. The reason that the walls fell down was one word, faith. Faith that God would do this. They believed that God would do it, and therefore they marched around, they did a silly, what we would call a stupid battle plan from a, from a people's point of view, but God said, go march around, march around, blow the trumpets, and I'll knock the walls down. They did it in faith, the walls come tumbling down. It was faith that brought the victory. They discarded the faith now. The next generation is not trusting the way that they, they were supposed to. Okay, go to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. They gather, and it says, Joshua's dead, came to pass. Children of Israel said, who's going to go up and lead us now that the Joshua is gone? And it goes on, it says, okay, the Lord said, Judah, 
the largest of the tribes, I'll let him go first, shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into Judah, the tribe of Judah's hand. And Judah said to the tribe of Simeon, come up and fight with us, we'll do this together. And you start reading in verse 4 that Judah goes up and the Lord did deliver the Canaanites, the Perizzites into their hand. And so they initially are starting off with faith. And God is giving them victory. He's helping them in the battle. But then go down, after initial victories, jump down to verse 19. All of a sudden we start hearing about, hearing about some of the defeats. And the Lord was with Judah. He drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Why? Did God change? No. Did all of a sudden they, they no longer had weapons? No. All of a sudden, they're not living by faith. And it goes on and says, because they had chariots of iron. Oh, wait, wait, I know why. They saw that the enemy were coming with tanks. They saw the enemy out, out and gunned them. They all of a sudden are intimidated, not only by the size, but the weaponry that they had. And wait a minute, our faith was not strong enough to face against these chariots. Now, you might say, hey, Wayne, now you got to stop. These guys are on, on foot. And surely chariots, they couldn't be chariots, but they do later on. How come in later on in chapter 4, when Deborah leads them, they defeat an army of 900 chariots with less weapons and less people because she's operating by faith. She has more trust. They are weak need because they're struggling with taking a step of faith. And as they start walking, not by, not by faith, but rather by sight, and they see the Anakim, that's the giants, and they see their weaponry, all of a sudden, they're no longer as enthusiastic. All of a sudden, they're no longer convinced they can win. And God, who had promised them all the victories, who had guaranteed it, if you do your part, I'll do my part, they don't do their part out of a lack of faith, out of not moving forward. It has nothing to do with weaponry. It has nothing to do with who's the biggest, the baddest. Because according to scriptures, God said, you, you might reach this spot. You might get here where you start doubting, but I will be there. Look what he said in Deuteronomy. If you say in your heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them, remove them out? You shall not be afraid. But you shall well remember the Lord your God, what he did to Pharaoh, what he did to Egypt, he'll do for you. He can still do it. But they stopped moving forward by faith and fear started taking over. As a result, they don't have the same victories. They didn't use the same faith factor that their previous generations had used. They, number two, become disobedient to God's commands. They become disobedience to God's command. Watch back in chapter 1. Watch in chapter 1 where it looks like, wow, big victory. Hey, back in chapter 1 it says this. Okay, verse 4. The Lord went up, the Lord delivered the Canaanites, the Perizzites, into the hand, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. Good victory, guys. And they found Adonai, or Lord Bezek, in Bezek, and they fought against him and slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai, Lord Bezek, he fled. They pursued after him. They caught him. They cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai, Bezek, threescore and ten kings, having cut off their thumbs and toes, that I have done so... God has repaid me in the same way. What's this all about? What am, I, what am I talking about? Here, let me see if I can give you an idea of where we're going here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The battle plan for them was this. You shall destroy all the people which the Lord your God shall deliver in your hand. When you go into the land of Canaan, you're going to have to destroy everybody. You wipe them out. 
Now you might wonder why, but we'll give you a little bit of an inkling of what these people are like in a minute. But he says, wipe them all out. Your eye shall have no pity on them, neither shall you serve their gods. And that was the key. Wipe them out, get rid of any trace, because otherwise you'll become like them. That was the command. The command was very clear. You destroy or you'll have a problem. We read then that what happens, that they were told as well that you shall make no treaty with these people. No treaties. No, not at all. You don't, you do not let them stay there. You make no arrangements, treaties that you'll spare them for money or whatever. No treaties. But all of a sudden we start reading these types of things. We read in Adonai, Lord Bez, uh, uh, Bezek, that instead of killing him, they mutilate him as a trophy, as showing what they can do. But they were told to destroy him. We read as well in chapter 1, verse 21. Watch this phrase come time and again. The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin unto this day, when it was written years later. We read in verse 27. It says about Manasseh. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and her towns, nor Tanak and the towns, nor the inhabitants. And you read at the end, the Canaanites dwell in that land. We read in verse 29 about Ephraim. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelled in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell in Gezer to this day. We read in verse 30 about Zebulun, did not drive out the inhabitants. But it goes on and says the Canaanites dwell among them. We read as well that Asher did not drive out out of the 12 tribes, nine of them are mentioned in these first couple chapters as not doing what God told them to do. Instead of wiping out, they decided that they would keep some of the people. They did not destroy them. Now, part of it is because they didn't operate by faith. Part of it is oh, disobedience. Watch what, not only are they allowing the people to stay there, but you read this phrase time and time again. They allowed them to stay to make them pay. Out of wanting to have money out of this deal, they, instead of destroying, they put them to tribute. We read about it in verse 28. We read about it in verses 30, 33, 35. That they're keeping the people, and one of the reasons they keep them is so they can make a profit off these people. And so now, instead of obeying God's word, they're operating by the pocketbook. So what happens? God had said, if you don't destroy them, they're going to become a snare to you. If you don't destroy them, you're going to start following after their other gods. If you start following after the other gods, you're going to have problems. They allowed them to stay. They start, they start keeping them as trophies. They start keeping them to pay and, and provide for their own pocketbook. And as a result, they will get snared into the gods and do exactly what God warned them about. In fact, you read in verse 35 that they allowed the town of Bethaneth all the peoples there, to remain. Bethaneth was a leading center of pagan worship. Aneth is one of the three goddesses of Baal. And Aneth and Baal, in their, in their idea of religion, they were supposed to be engaged in copulation so as to have crops grow and cattle to be reproduced and all these things. And part of Bethaneth's worship was you would practice orgies. You would have all these huge sexual centers they were warned about that. They were told to destroy, but they leave Bethaneth. They leave that town. They leave these people. Why? Why? Because they're becoming disobedient to the word of God because they can make more money, they think. Because they can show their power, they think. 
You know, the bottom line is this. God rewards obedience and disobey and, and chastens disobedience. It's true back then. It's true today. He rewards living by faith. He rewards following the word of God. And you and I got to say, wait a minute. Do we act by faith when we handle our finances? Do we act by faith when it comes to giving out the word of God and not being afraid of what they look like? Do we, do we operate by faith when we say I'm going to do some service for the Lord, something extra and let God use it, let God work in my life. I'm going to give my life to the Lord for the mission field or whatever. Is there a life of faith? Is there a life of obedience? Is there the idea that says, okay, I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what my kids do, no matter what my partner says, I'm going to do what God says, live by faith and let him use my example to impact others. Do we live by faith? And following the word of God when it says I want my life to be a clean vessel, I don't want the lying, the cheating, the dishonesty, the immorality. I don't want the greed, the anger. I want that out of my life. I'm going to do what's right at school. And I don't care what others may think. I'm going to live by faith. And I'm going to serve the Lord and make sure that people know that I am obedient to the Lord. I'm going to get baptized. I know some of my family will be mad because they thought I was, I was baptized as a baby when I got sprinkled, which isn't biblical baptism. I'm going to follow the Lord in believer's baptism by being put under the water and then raised to walk in newness of life. You say, okay, what am I going to do when it comes to getting God's blessings? Will I, will I by faith, spend some time in prayer as a family, as an individual for my family? Operate by faith so God can bless. And all these that we've mentioned are obedience to God's words. What do we live by? It's easy to cast the stones back through the time of history and say, Oh, the Jews, how could they do that? How could they do it? Terrible, terrible, terrible. What about you and me? What do we expect from the next generation if we don't give the example of taking steps of faith? What do we expect from another generation or from those that we would impact if we aren't obedient to the word of God? The kids see our spirit. The kids know our attitude when it comes to worship. They know they sit and watch you enough when you come to worship. If you're attentive, if you care, or if you're just going through motions. Do they see a desire to serve the Lord, a desire to be obedient to the word, to live by faith? Now the Jews made another mistake. They made a terrible mistake, and it's this. They became disinterested in knowing God. This is a reflection of the next generation. Go to chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 2, as the Spirit of God is speaking, as Christ is speaking to the crowds, he makes a comment here. He's pointing out to them. And also all the generations were gathered unto their fathers. Now we're moving on to another generation, and then another generation. And he says, and there arose another generation. This is scary. Look at verse 10. Underline it. Mark it. After them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Why is the book of Judges such a sad story? Because those up and coming Hebrews did not know the Lord. The word for knowing the Lord is the idea of being intimate with. The idea of really getting to know him. Why is that? Why is it that the next generation did not know the Lord? Does it fall the fault fall on the parents for not telling them? Did the parents not train them according to Deuteronomy? Remember Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage, the Lord our God is one Lord. Well, it goes right beyond that and says, these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Is it 
Is he saying in chapter 2 verse 10 that the parents didn't take time to personally teach the kids the Bible? They left it up to the others. They left it up to the rabbis. They left it up to the, the Levites. I don't know. But it's there somewhere that the next generation didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't grab onto it. Joshua set up memorial stones. These are pictures of stones that are up in the Grand Canyon of PA that somebody put up like Joshua had put up. Memory stones that were supposed to be a visual, a visual reminder. Hey, let's talk about the miracles. Let's talk about how the Jordan opened. Let's talk about how the Red Sea opened. Let's talk about how God had provided. But they didn't talk about it anymore. The one generation no longer talked about God providing. No longer relayed the miracles. Scary thought. Scary truth that you and I are to relay, to share what God has done in our life to let them know. Whose fault is it? Well, obviously, some of the previous generation didn't train and didn't give an example. But I remind you what the book of Proverbs does. The book of Proverbs, time and again talking about parenting, it says parents teach this, parents teach this, parents teach this. And then it talks to the kids and it says, listen, apply, respect, and talks about what they're... It's both parties are involved in training. It's not just totally the parents and it's not just totally the kids. There's got to be involvement with both. And there's a reality that sometimes parents don't do their part, then the kids are going to have problems. The reality is parents may do their part, but the kids don't listen. And they don't grab it. Exactly whose fault was it in the book of Judges? I don't know. You don't know. But the scary part is that we've got to look and say, what does the Bible tell us? It warns us. It warns us that there's that possibility, and it happened in history, that the next generation may go astray. The next generation may not be interested in following the Lord, may not know the Lord, and you and I have to do what we can do. And we pray and we hope that the next generation does their part in listening and applying and wanting that. And so we challenge and say to the young people of our church, please, Please listen to the Word of God. Don't, don't take for granted that everybody has what you have when it comes to the training of the Word of God. Don't assume that this is boring stuff. This is about your future. Learning to love and serve the Lord your God with all your life, it begins as a young person saying, that's what I need to do. It'll have an impact upon you for the rest of your life. If, the, if, you, if you show and continue to show... This, just the idea that you don't care about spiritual things. That it doesn't make any difference. That it's more fun to play your phone, play with your phone instead of listening to sermons and Sunday school lessons. That's going to reap consequences in the days ahead. Take the word of God. Take it and make it part of your own life. In other words, we want to say what's obvious here. The next generation did not apply themselves to getting to know God. You make it different in your life. You get to know him. Don't take the blessings for granted. We need to talk about with our kids and they need to hear about the way that God has blessed. Stories like Bob mentioned this morning, they need to abound in our conversations that our God does care, that our God does provide. But somehow it's lost in some nations. It's lost in some generations. And you and I need to take the warning and say, listen, if we had the ten plagues happen in our history, we need to tell about that. In fact, let's rephrase that. We need to talk about how God was so great in the Old Testament and he's still the same God today. 
that he could deliver these people. And the miracles are important miracles to teach the kids. Talk about his greatness and how he led and guided them and was so concerned and he guides and leads us in a better way. Not with a pillar or not with a cloud, but the spirit living within us. How much better we have it. How God provided for them the manna and provided in special ways. God provides for us in special ways. We need to tell the stories about how God gave victories in our lives, in our Jerichos, and how the walls came a-tumbling down over the issues that we struggled with, broke down the barriers of our resistance to the gospel, and talk about the greatness of our God who leads, who guides, who provides. And he says... They stopped learning. They didn't know about him. They didn't talk about the great things that he has done. What you have here is a group of people that just didn't care about knowing God anymore. Oh man, no wonder they had problems. They're disinterested in God. They didn't adopt the Father's religion. They're an individual who didn't make God a part of their life. Worship was, was boring for them. As a result, there's no walk with him. It's a sad, sad story. It's a terrible story. It's a story that reflects both parent and children not doing what God wanted them to do. And as a result, they go astray. They they didn't love the Lord their God. They didn't know Him. We don't want that to happen to our kids, our grandkids. We don't want that to happen to our friends. Then here's their fourth mistake. They desire to experience the world. They want what everybody else around them wants. In fact, go to the beginning of the chapter and look at me, look with me at the story once again that they adopted practices that God told them not to adopt. Now, God said, you destroy the enemy. They take Adonai Bezek, that is the Lord of the, the Bezekites, they take him and they cut off his thumb. They mutilate him, his big toes, his thumbs. He says, the reason that they did that to me is because I did that to 70 other people that I captured. This idea of mutilation was very common in the ancient world amongst the pagan cultures. To show our power, our authority over somebody. To have them around so we could kind of use them as a trophy so that others can look and say, see how powerful we are. We, you know, this is what we do. And look, we're tough. We're, we're macho. But it was an ungodly worldly practice that was not inspired by God's Spirit telling them. God had told them, you don't keep these people as trophies. They'll become an influence on you. You have this whole idea. Look at the following verses that happened in chapter 2 where it says they knew not God in verse 10. Look what it says they did instead. Verse 11. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. They forsook the Lord Jehovah of their fathers which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, the gods of the people that were round about and bowed themselves before them and provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord is stirred up again you got to know a little bit about, about Baal and Ashtaroth. Talk about feeling a little bit dirty. The other night we had, in part of that digital discernment, we had the, some local law enforcement individuals here. They told stories of how the computers and how the Internet has been used to prey on young people. And they gave actual accounts. Felt dirty afterwards. Hearing the, the garbage that happens and some of the criminal activity and the dangers. And you go, ugh. How, how scuzzy with this child pornography stuff and how vile it is. That's the way we should feel when we understand what Baal worship is all about. 
Baal worship is just some of the most decadent stuff you can find. Because of the mixed audience, let me be tactful, but try to explain what it is. He's the God of reproduction. He's the God of your family growing. He's the God of your crops growing. He's the God of your cattle and your, 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 your herds growing. He's, the, he's, he's an important deity, the most important in the Canaanite religion. And so what they would do is they, would, they understood that your family could grow, your crops would come. And it happens when Baal and one of his goddesses, they get together and they have relationships. And so they would pray that Baal and his goddesses would get together. And he had three main ones that he would have activities with according to their religion. And so these gods, it was all about their, they picture their god in sexual activities. That was all their focus, all their focus in their worship. And so they thought this, in their worship they thought to encourage their God to do his thing so that we would get crops, we would get cattle, we would get kids. The way we worship is we would display for the God what we want him to do. So their worship centers were actually centers filled with prostitutes, male and female, for both you know, normal or aberrant sexual relations. And it was orgies, private, whatever. And as well, he was the god of wine. So if we really want him to bless our crops, the way that we get him to do that is show him how much we appreciate the wine. So drunken orgies were the norm for that society. That's what they do for worship. That's how vile it was. Oh, and by the way, to show our appreciation, we will sacrifice our own children. So this Baal worship was just vile, disgusting. God said, don't you keep these people around because they'll start tainting you. They'll, start in, they'll, they'll get you involved in this stuff. You'll start hearing about it so much that what happens when you hear about something so much, you no longer think it's that bad. In fact, when you hear about it so much, you get used to it. And so the warnings abound. And the Jews kept the Canaanites around. And the Canaanites, and, and, and they kept the worship centers like Bethaneth. They didn't destroy the worship center. Well then, surprise. Oh, and I didn't mention it, but you see it on the wall. One of the main animals that you would worship is the snake. Does that surprise you? That the snake worship would be involved? So you know it's very occultic. It's very, it's, it's just... in. It's just a dirty, dirty religious system. It's vile. And the Jews, they didn't get rid of it. Now, let's, let's be frank, let's be honest. Would there be any temptation when you see stuff like people being drunk? People doing erotic things? Is there any yeah, yoo-hoo, come. Temptation with that stuff? The answer is, yeah. Yeah, our society knows that. That's why you get these pop-ups that are dirty. They know that, that there's, there's going to be an inclination, that it's, that it's there, that there's, there could easily be a desire for those things, that they appeal to the flesh, they appeal to the lust of the eyes. Well, the Jews, it appealed to them. It, it became attractive to them. They got away from knowing the Lord. They, he had no absolutes, or they had no absolutes. And it was like, well, that kind of looks fun. And frankly, you can see why sin always looks fun. Because there is pleasure in sin. 
for a season. But it is presented as pleasurable, is it not? And so that's a natural, it's a natural temptation that was before them and they gave into it. Things that were forbidden and yet they dabble in them because they wanted to be like the world. It was attractive to them. It pulled them, it had a desire for them and yet the word of God is so clear. For us who live in this modern progressive age, we have scripture that says, love not the world neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. Then he goes on, he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life is not of God, but it's of this world. The world will pass away, and he goes on, he says, and the lust thereof, but God, he that does the will of God, and he warns us, stay away from those things. He warns us about a lot of natural responses and appetites. And he says, hey, you got to be careful. You got to be careful about your anger. Got to be careful about your speech and your honesty. You got to be careful, and I'm giving you warnings. Time and time again, be honest. Have no, no drunkenness with wine where there is the, the debauchery. Flee the youthful us. Time and again, make no provision. He gives us warning after warning after warning. Why? He's not trying to, to forbid us from enjoying life. He's trying to help us to enjoy life the way it should be enjoyed. He's trying to help us to have fulfillment, not sadness, not destruction, not sorrow that comes from choices that are against the Word of God. Because the Word makes it clear, be sure your sin will find you out. And the way of the transgressor is hard. So God warns us, like He warned those people, but they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They thought they knew better than God and that they could handle this, but it just got worse and worse and worse. These individuals had all the heartache and shame, and that's the book of Judges. Heartache and shame because they went after the forbidden fruit. It's because they didn't listen. Here's the bottom line. Bottom line for the people, they forfeited all that God wanted for them because they didn't walk by faith because they disobeyed clear commands, because they became disinterested in really getting to know God, because they were desiring to experience what the world had to offer them. You and I could fall into the same thing. We have got to be ever so careful. We have got to put up barriers. And for them, the sad part is in verse 19. It didn't happen just once. But the book of Judges is a repetition of a cycle that happens. Look at verse 19. It came to pass when the judge was dead, the one that God will send to bring about revival, that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them, to bow down. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. The book of Judges is such a sad story of how they cyclically get into problems. And then we read this. The angel of the Lord came. The anger of the Lord, look at verse 20. The anger of the Lord was hot against them. He's upset. He's angry. He speaks to them. And he says, because you have chosen this, here's what I'm going to do. I'm no longer going to drive them out. They are a problem, and I'm going to leave them there as a means of being a thorn in your side. They're going to serve as chastisement. They're going to serve as chastisement because you chose. You chose to get involved with drugs. I can heal you of the drugs, but I may leave you with some of the scars from that, mentally, physically, emotionally. You can get into drunkenness, and I can bring you out if you repent, but you still might have physical issues. Your unborn child might be affected by it. 
you might get into all kinds of immorality. And I can get you out if you repent. But you may have consequences. And that's chastisement as a reminder. And these people end up with, the, with God saying, I'm going to leave them here, not take them out. You're going to suffer some chastisement. And then he adds to that in verse 21 and 22. I'm not going to drive them out because I'm going to leave them there to test you if you're really serious about getting back when you repent. That through them I may prove who is the Lord of your life. He's going to use them as a means of correction. He's going to use the, the Canaanites through the book of Judges as a mean, as means of, okay, are you going to repent and return to me? Are you going to repent and really return to me? And I'm going to use them as a reminder of how much you need me. A pastor was sharing the true story of an individual that came to church. A young couple, they claimed to be born again. Came to church rather sporadically. But when they'd show up, you know, they loved the Lord pastor went and visited them and talked with them and the couple was, you know, they told about when they had their born again experience. But coming faithfully to church, they, they, they admitted, they just, life is too busy. We're young, we're getting a home built, we have a, you know, a cabin by the lake, we're starting our careers. And there's just a lot of stuff in our life, we're just too busy. We're, we're going to have time for God later on. You know, well, what about prayer time? Well, we, we're, again, we're too busy praying and reading the Bible. We're just too busy, not only with worship, but those things. And besides, Pastor, we heard you preach about sharing the Word of God. We just think that it's kind of too forthright to tell other people that they might be going to hell and that they need to listen to God. We, we kind of think that, that, you know, it's everybody to themselves. The pastor tried to minister to the couple, and they were always kind, and they would come once in a great while. But then, all of a sudden, they found out that they were expecting a child. They showed up to church. They wanted to make sure that they raised their child, and they really influenced their kid. So they were in church. First Sunday told people they were excited. The second Sunday, the third Sunday. And then life got busy again. They weren't around. Pastor try to see them, but they're just too busy, too busy. There's, the kid's coming, we've got so many things. It's just our life is so busy, you don't understand. We're, we'll, we'll deal with spiritual things in our own way. The pastor told me that he got a phone call. It was time for the baby to be due. The husband's on the phone sobbing and saying, I need you to come right away. Gets to the hospital. And the husband explains, he says, we just were able to diagnose and the, the baby is going to be born with some huge handicaps and infirmities, physically, mentally. I need somebody to help me tell my wife. Pastor said it was horrible. It was hard. They broke the news. And he feared that this couple who had shown nothing spiritually, for all intents and purposes, he feared that they would just absolutely get angry with God and walk away and have never again nothing to do with God. But he said it shocked them. They did just the opposite. With the birth of their child, they all of a sudden became very, very spiritual. They all of a sudden were in the Word. They were seeking counsel. They all of a sudden, all those things... They got put aside. And this individuals, they focused. And the pastor said, I'll never forget when I went to visit. The child was about two years old, close to the birthday. I went to visit. Dad had arranged that he would work at home so at part of the time so his wife would have a break. And he said, we're sitting in Dad's work area in his office. The crib is there in the corner with all the equipment that's needed for the child. And he said that the father spoke to him, and I have to read you the words so I don't miss any of them. 
With a smile, the dad looked over at his son and then back at the pastor and said, I'm so thankful for this, my son. Despite his infirmities, he has become a great blessing to me and my wife. The Lord had to give me that child to bring me to himself, and I'm so glad that he did. Each day, the boy reminds me how much I need the Lord. God left the Canaanites there to remind them how much they need the Lord. And it's such a sad cycle. You know this. This is the book. This is how the book unfolds. You have the Jews having a moment of rebellion. God chastens them through the Canaanites. They repent. God rescues them through a judge. He sends several different judges. Some you know already. Some we're going to start tonight talking about one that you have no clue, probably. Then they have a period of rest. And things go good. And then you have the Jews going back to rebellion. And then they get reproved. And then you have repentance. And then you have a rescue. And it's this cycle that occurs some 12 different times through this book. Because they don't learn. They just don't get it. They don't realize the folly of sin. And if they had, the cycle would be broken. For the sake of your family, realize the folly of sin and break its cycle. You don't have to live there. You can break that cycle. But I tell you this as I close. This book is filled with mercy. The faithfulness of God, because there's a statement in chapter 2 that amazes me. I will never break my covenant with you. Despite what you do, I will not break my promises. And so in grace, God sends them the judges. Time and time again. And the judges, as each one appears, it says, no matter how far you have fallen, I am willing to minister to you. I am willing to do a work for you. I was reading a story about an Indian chief that years ago he got born again. His family did not understand the change in his life. He put off a lot of the old ways, the old religious ways. He started changing. He talked about, about Jesus Christ. And they were giving him a hard time. And all of a sudden he went to visit some relatives at a distant area and he came and got in a group of them and they were saying, we heard about you. What has happened to you? Why are you all about this Jesus? Why are you so fanatical about him? What has happened to you? And he explained it this way. He got a pile of leaves and put them together. Then he dug real quickly while everybody was watching and gathering around and he dug up the ground a little bit, pulled out a worm, put the worm in the center of the pile of leaves. He then lit the outside edge of the leaves and let it burn. As the burning of the fire came closer and closer to the center, that worm was squiggling more and more, nowhere to go. And finally the chief reached down, picked it up, and pulled it out. He said, that's what Jesus has done for me. He has rescued me. I owe him everything. You and I owe Christ everything. We should serve him to the best of our abilities and not make the same mistake the Hebrews did. They knew better, and so do you. Don't repeat their mistake.